The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing now as we come to study this topic of marriage, particularly as it comes uh, in this realm of family of origin. Would you give us great patience and courage as we talk about some of this material, and especially as we go forth and try to apply it to our lives. I ask your blessing, not just on this time, but on the marriages and the, the future marriages that Uh, and even past marriages that have uh, dissolved, we ask that you would be our rock and our fortress so that we may live as you are calling us to, with the mindset of remembering what marriage ultimately was for, to create uh, this incredible intimacy that points to our relationship with you, and that we would be holy as you are holy. So bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I was talking about with Liz a little bit, this material this week, was probably what was like the booby trap of stuff leading into marriage for me. I did not expect it to be, I think we heard a little bit in our premarital counseling of, yeah, you need to leave your father and mother, and and maybe like five minutes was given to it. It has been 12 years of reflecting on just what all it means. So I hope if you had a chance to read, get a chance to read it, anyone? This, yeah, okay, or some of it. It's, it's amazing, and I'm going to play a little clip from a conference that he did that this book is based off of. Just, I think it'll be important for you to hear his, the way he talks, the way he thinks, because it comes across very clearly in his writing, and I think there's, once you hear him speak, there's more uh, compassion that comes across, perhaps, in, in the way he is that maybe isn't in his writing. He, he can be a very snarky kind of person at times, but it's, it's, it's quite lovely, I think. So leaving is the issue that we're talking about, leaving our parents. And I think, for, I mean, if you're here and you're like, well, my parents died a while ago, or I don't have a relationship with my parents, hopefully this material will make you realize that it's so much more than just a one-time thing, which is kind of what I thought of when we were getting married, is oh, we just get married and then it just kind of happens that you have left your, your parents. It's actually so much more profound than that. Leaving is not a one-time deal. It is a continual daily sometimes process of not just the physical. I mean, remember he already alluded to it's not just a financial or physical or like geographic leaving, though that may happen. It's so much more profound than that. It is a, um, an, a mental leaving of, of an allegiance, really, that formed you and developing a new one. And it's not something that just happens. You have to be really adamant about forming it, and it's something that you can even be entrenched in, both psychologically and maybe even physically, without realizing it. Even with your parents, you know, decades ago, you can be controlled by an allegiance to them in a way that can come up just with your past history. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. The whole point uh, of leaving, he says, is to create trust. And trust, I think it's cliche, we all know it's the bedrock, it's the foundation of any marriage, any relationship, but that is actually really true. And so he puts it like this on page 36. He said, uh, the, the purpose of leaving Trust can never be truly established unless the couple sever the bonds of loyalty with their parents, with their past, with their possessions, and with their power. 
And why are they doing that? They're doing it in order to create space for a new trust to grow without the entanglement of old loyalties. So you're breaking, and those are kind of, he spends a lot of time breaking down our past relationship with our parents, but then also it includes any allegiances, any loyalties that uh, are going to be secondary to this new relationship of marriage. So the first chapter, we're looking at two chapters. The first one kind of gives an out, it talks about trust, it talks about boundaries. The second one goes much deeper into those two realms of uh, your parents, your relationship with them, and then any other sort of loyalty you may have. So I'm curious, when you hear those words, uh, that trust can never be established truly unless the couple sever the bonds of loyalty with their parents' past possessions and power, how does that sound to you? What immediately emotionally kind of comes up for you when you think about that? You're starting at ground zero. Okay. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Some people, lots of people. I might be upset about it. I don't know. Can we be honest is a big takeaway from this. Do we actually have the honesty both with our, uh, any other loyalties, parents? And he talks about that. He'll qualify. I mean, it's not an absolute immediate just, I get married, therefore I have no relationship whatsoever. He's not, he qualifies that. But there is absolutely a, a new allegiance. And anytime change comes about, as you said, there's, uh, particularly in this relationship with people who've poured themselves out for you, the potential for in, to be perceived in, in gratitude or um, yeah, just lots of potential conflict that comes up. I get really nervous thinking about the whole idea of I don't like conflict. I mean, maybe some people really love conflict and they just steamroll right in. That is not me. I do tend to, to fly away when things get hard or the threats even of hard. And I'm generally not too perceptive on how things are gonna feel for others, but I am perceptive enough in this that if I'm developing an entirely new allegiance, that may cause unhappiness maybe with, with parents or, or other things, friends even. So he, he talks about that. But it was interesting, last week we talked about, you know, outlining Genesis 2, 24, this command to uh, a man must leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was incredible, if you remember, in the ancient Near Eastern context. That was incredibly shocking because that culture had such a strong belief, like you're talking about with um, patriarchy and matriarchy, and this, this strong duty to your family and to the community. And it was in that context that 
this command was actually given. And it was interesting, if you think about it, then guests were more, he talks about guests were more honored than children, than family. Guests in that ancient Near Eastern context were, were, were prized. And then you think about primogeniture, which is like this, you know, depending on where you are in the family and uh, your children, there might be more uh, value, so to speak, of, of, of kind of where you lie in that pecking order. And so it's amazing that it's in that context that each uh, new marriage, each child that goes off is given, there was, he talks about though it's not exactly, they probably, most of them ended up living in the same house as their family. They had much bigger families. And they shared their finances as a whole, but it was, there are two things that were even remarkable in that kind of context is even if you were the, the lowest child, the moment you got married, you were now considered your own entity. Though you were physically in the same place, financially still dependent on the larger family, you had your own room. There was a level of privacy to it, but then there was also a level of primacy that, that it was clearly understood from the get-go, even then, that, that you are now, you have a new allegiance, you have a new supreme loyalty. My experience in premarital counseling and dealing with folks is Usually the first thing that comes up, and well, what about the command to honor your father and mother? Like, how does that interplay into all of this? And so, uh, how, how would you define, before, maybe if you read this chapter, like, how would you have defined honoring your parents before reading this? Before reading this? Yeah. <laughs> doing what they say, just doing just, what they say. Yeah. Listening to what they say and, and obedience. Well, that's what you did for... That's right. Yeah. You yeah. owe them. You owe them back. Yes. You owe them back to do what they say. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I think there's a fallacy in that though that of my age that I've come to realize and I always turn it back to my parent, my living parent now and say, Well that all sounds well and good, but um, <laughs> but you see the fallout of that is going to be this. Yeah. And I know you don't want that, do you? So you're being very well, I'm, I'm very diplomatic, but yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely make yeah. that stand, which I never made before the the obedient child. My mother used to say, "Karen always do her place." That's a very beautiful thing yeah. to say, but it's true. And so, therefore, you know, now neither one of us are happy. See what I'm mm -hmm. saying? It's like, wait a minute, that yeah. didn't work. Yeah. You know, so I have to throw it back and say, now, let, now let's think about this. You know, what we both want is this. Yeah. Right, so I need your support in this. I need you to be happy for me. And I think that's the key. Mm -hmm. You know, the be happy thing. Because really, when people pout and have mm -hmm. full self pity and all that, it's terribly uh, manipulative, unfortunately, mm -hmm. whether they mean to do it or not. Yeah. And actually, me obeying my parents, I would, I would tell them what I thought they wanted to hear. Yeah, so, yeah, because you want them to be happy. That's. That's right. So if I tell them what they, I think that they want, then all is well and good. There's no conflict. Yep. Again, yeah, it goes back to can we be well, honest? And then she's happy, like she's happy because I did what yeah. she originally, what I thought she originally wanted. So then everything's fine. Yeah. I love the air quotes and all of what you just did, right? Um, those are important. Yeah. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> so this is this is exactly. Sorry. Okay. I am the good child, I am the dutiful child, I, I was a debutante, I did that, but my, if we're watching this interesting show, my relationship with my parents has always been one of, I love them, I am phenomenally to them, I respect them, mm. I am kind, I am those are all great words for honor, by the way. But I love them enough and I respect myself enough to be honest with the boundaries that I have in my life. And I, I mean, I am seasoned straight. I'm far from my children in some ways than my parents were. I mean, you say, do you see yourself in your parents? Yeah. I know I'm way harder on my kids than my parents were. But I also knew my mother as a different mother. I am my mother than my brother's child. My mother had three boys in seven years. And that's essentially what I did. By the time she had me, she had a 17-year-old, 13-year-old, and a six-year-old. I grew up in a very different household than they did. And I see, in some ways, I have always had a fight to compete with my brother and prove to my parents and to myself that I was Well, it sounds like you are definitely able to speak the truth in many ways to your mom, which is an important part of honoring. I want to be sensitive to, did you have a, what honoring meant to yeah, you? Well, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> mine was kind of a different situation. You know, they didn't, they didn't really grow up with a whole lot. And so their, their mindset was kind of anything you can do is better than where we start. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this, I mean, yeah, they wanted, they wanted, all of us to, to do well and succeed in school and yeah. that kind of thing. But it wasn't like this, you know, most of the time it wasn't an overbearing pressure. So as I grew up, honoring meant, you know, doing the best to, to satisfy the request. And then later that transitioned to, you know, when we're there, being respectful of what their thoughts and beliefs are, if they differ from ours in any way, which most of the time they don't, but occasionally there's something. But, you know, just being respectful of being in their house and kind of, doing that and then, you know, go back to things need to be different. And they've been 
Yeah. You know, I'm just still really fortunate they've been pretty accepting. Like they seem to understand kind of inertia. Like, okay, you know, there's been a separation now. We'll show up when he wants to. And then to the point where they're even sometimes apologetic. Oh, you know, we didn't need to mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. You know, sorry about that. And, you know, most of the time it's really fine. I'm like, no, no, no. Thank you for fully coming. It's amazing how there is on both spectrums. You can have families who, in one sense, all parenting is constant adjustment. Like if you parent to a seven-year-old and then a 14-year-old the same way you do to a six-month-old, it's going to be a disaster. So you have to adapt, and some families cannot do that. And especially in this, you're now married, and we're going to treat you the same way that we treat, treated you at six months. Like it, That's going to be difficult. One of the things that I heard y'all saying, though, is honesty is, or uh, honoring, it is not so much unqualified obedience, when, especially when you're married. That is kind of the key. But it's more of a matter of the heart. It's respect. It's listening and weighing, considering what they have to say with weight and, 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 and that sort of thing. But, you know, you also have families, too, that on the flip side, and this is so interesting, like, they're... You see this as well, where some parents are, you're your own. I'm, you're, you're good. You just, you do you. I'll be around if you need anything. <laughs> and they kind of just like slowly back away and they're never, the, the intimacy and the desire for a relationship, you can err on both sides. You can be way too much expectation of meeting my desires to just like, I'm going to leave it all up to you for this relationship and back away and wipe, wipe your hands. And both of those, I think, fall short. And it, in such a short period of uh, pages, he tries to address how both of those are ultimately not the, the picture of what God has for us. It's important how he defines honoring. I'll read this, page 38. And, and I wish I could read this to everybody who's going through premarital counseling. Honor, honoring our father and mother is not a command to avoid honesty, conflict, or disagreement. Many take it as a demand to make sure a parent is never unhappy. But God didn't put that kind of pressure or responsibility on children. To honor is to acknowledge with gratitude the gift of life we have been given through our parents. It is to name with joy who we have become due to their failures and glory. Both of them. There's a lot in there. He kind of goes into it. But this is really important because the other piece that he talks about is the command to leave, come, it's the first command given to a newly married Adam and Eve. It's not till a, much later in the Bible the command to honor your parents is given. The command to leave your parents is given, and it's, most, it's meant to take precedence even. Most people I meet with, and the way I kind of thought was like, these are two commands on the same level. You're, you need to honor your parents, and you need to leave them, and, and they're on the same level. And what he's saying is actually the first one, which is to leave, comes before and takes precedence over honoring. And that's not then to dishonor, but it's the, the importance of requiring a new allegiance in this marriage. I love Deuteronomy 24. If you've ever read parts, especially the Old Testament, trying to read through it in a year, you'll get to like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all of these random laws, and you're like, this is too much to handle, and it just kind of flows away. There's a law in there, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Listen to this law of Israel. 
A newly married man must not be drafted into the army or be given any other official responsibilities. He must be free to spend one year at home bringing happiness to the wife he has married. That's, that's amazing. But look at the significance that they placed on this, this important season this first year is so critically important, so much so that the theocracy of Israel would enforce laws that you may not basically require of any duties of, of men at this time. And notice, not to please your parents, but to please your spouse. That was the law in Deuteronomy 24.5. So it's the importance of developing this new allegiance. And that requires, as many of you have already said, boundary making boundaries if you've never read the book boundaries by townsend and cloud i find that's probably one of the top three books i keep recommending to young adults and to older adults too it's just learning how to be your own self and that's the thing is you're not, it's not dishonoring to acknowledge your individuality when you have parents particularly where they I, I have I've got three little kids and so i, I want to be I, I don't know what it's like i can already imagine how much I've poured into them, how much I love them, how much they are part of my life. And I can, I can try to only imagine what it would be like to have 18 years of multiple children that you've poured yourself into and, and then to acknowledge their individuality in such a way and to give honor to their choices that, that you have to be your own person. That's a, I don't want to minimize how hard that is, and I think that's really important to acknowledge. But, but boundaries, which are just simple, I mean, you could look at the Ten Commandments all ten of them are simply boundary markers. It's how, what you're supposed to do or not do in your relationship with God, with others, and, and yourself. And, and he says boundaries are really helpful because they can kind of end a dispute before it even happens. So it's the whole reason we have like property maps. We keep records of boundaries so that we know what to expect. And if there's going to be some sort of uh, transgression then we can have a, a common language and common expectations of what this is. And it's honoring to both parties, actually. So that's what it means to, to, to have boundaries. And he gives us really, he places so much weight on you have to leave your parents and, and all of your, of your past and, and, and to basically sever the allegiance and loyalty to your parents. This is a tough language. But he gives this important qualifier on page 39. He says, boundaries mark off space not to cut off contact with others, but to protect the young trust that is beginning to take root in a marriage. That sounds very difficult if they still continue to live in the same house. You know what I mean? And that's why it required serious boundaries and communication to do that. But it says, note this well, jealous, possessive boundary building that cuts off a person from their family, friends, customs and care is not biblical. No spouse should ever be severed from their family and friends under the guise of leaving all past loyalties. No spouse should ever pressure a young wife or husband with the words, it's either me or them. And he walks this line, we must be willing to give up all that is in the past for our spouses, yet to demand it and require it at the outset of the other spouse is something that is wrong. You see how that is, that's a fine line. We have to be willing to do this. And there's not this like hard rigidity of just ending it. But there, there is, yeah?
And that's right. And I'm not going to lie. I actually have been in that position with Drew mm-hmm. to make the demand. Yeah. Because, and, and not in a, I don't love you, but in a, I love our children. Yeah. And I love my sanity and I love our marriage enough. If you cannot love us enough to understand that this behavior is unacceptable and that I cannot tolerate this for myself and I will not put my children through this, mm-hmm. then this is no longer a healthy or a sustainable marriage. Right. There's the communication between both of you, but the point is the power lies in the marriage, not outside of it. And he gives the image of a garden where this is what the, the tender soil of a new marriage, the point of boundary, you build a fence so that you know, deer don't come in and, and ruin, right? And so part of leaving, think of leaving as guarding this allegiance. You're putting a boundary marker to protect the, the, the garden that you have cultivated. So he talks about it's not just family, it's other things like hobbies and coworkers and other relationships. It's not this like obnoxious, quick, you know, ending of all things, but, but a, a conversation that's deliberate and thoughtful with one another. Here are some good questions I've found um, that you can ask because it's all about, it's not just one person having all the power in the marriage. It's both people saying, let's talk about this together, about what we want to create. Here are some good questions. What is it that you fear? Always a good question to talk about in your marriage. What is it that you fear to your, you know, asking your spouse? Asking your spouse, what is it you most desire? And then how can we bless each other even when there are strong and deep differences between us? Those are unbelievably good questions to ask, particularly when these intruders, whoever they may be, are coming. You have to converse. And that's why next week we're talking about the, the lubricant, the, the communication, which is what is fueling this marriage. So uh, he goes into talking about trust and trust being really, really important. The the takeaway I had there is love is unconditional. You know, he he has, Dan Allender has a great book called Bold Love in which he says um, love is is basically extending good gifts for the sake of the other at great cost to yourself. And forgiveness is entailed with that. And, And that's always unconditional. Now, repentant, or, um, reconciliation is dependent, and trust is in that same category. It's in a, it's, he calls it, it's, it grows on a different vine, trust compared to love. Love is always unconditional. We ought to do it no matter what, and that's going to look different um, to different people, but trust is something that takes a long time of small faith, acts of faithfulness over and over and over again to develop, and it can be lost like that. So trust is something that is very much contingent and dependent, and it would be unwise to offer blind trust to somebody that has proven in the past to break your trust. Now, that doesn't mean you don't forgive them, it doesn't mean you don't love them, but it's acknowledging that love and trust are very different, and that's a very important reality in marriage. And so how do we, how do we build trust? He talks about the importance of just being faithful slowly over time in the small things. He talks about this point of, he, he notes this one time his wife finally revealed something really significant that happened years and years, I mean decades ago. And he goes, what was it in me that enabled you to say this now? She goes, well, I feel like you finally got to the point instead of trying to help, you were more of a healer. 
And so what I heard in that was the example that you probably heard me give before, the importance of empathy and actually feeling with the other, to get in the pit, so to speak. The, the moments in, this was one of the biggest takeaways in our marriage in the first year, was you know, sitting there and I'm very much trying to help the person get out of the pit that they're in and thinking strategically, those are my gifts. I'm good at fixing problems. What Molly, you said you always wanted was not so much me to help you fix the problem but, or, or to throw a ladder maybe into the pit to help you climb out, but to actually go myself down in there and sit and listen and to, um, to, to feel and see you, right? And that empathy creates, uh, I think, the grounds for trust because it's willing to feel the pain that you yourself are feeling. That's what vulnerability is. It's to be woundable and to offer empathy when people who are suffering and hurting is to make yourself feel suffering and pain and hurting. It's to be yourself woundable. And that's, that when you see that in another person, which it can't be artificial, that slowly creates more and more trust. And I think this is important too, when we think about trust, oh boy, we gotta wrap it up, is the, um, you're gonna blow trust all the time on different levels. And so part of gaining trust is how is your ability to repair the relationship when you've broken trust? Now, hopefully the, the magnitude of your rupture of the trust isn't that significant, but whenever you break it, I mean, it can be, uh, you know, you said you were going to take the trash out. It could be that small and you didn't do it, but that's a rupture of trust. How can you repair that relationship? Those are, and when you do that, when you show yourself to be good at doing that, then uh, that, that creates more trust. The, the next chapter, chapter 5, walking away from home, he goes into three things. that This marriage relationship, he just goes deeper into these same truths. It's talking about the, the importance of the privacy of the marriage, that there's nothing that you're going to be said in this marriage uh, that basically no one else can come in where we are. Nobody gets the right to go into this space between us without both of our being willing to invite people in there. So nobody can come in and divide them. So nobody can be, nobody's going to be the spouse to you that I am. We have the deepest, most profound place of intimacy, and nobody can intrude there. And for, the, for us, this has looked like talking, going into family gatherings. It's pre-hearsing uh, is what, what we've called it. And it's, okay, what do we envision happening in here? What are things that you want done or not done? How do we want to speak about or to one another? And it's talking about that before going into it. That's, that's how you honor the, primacy, or the privacy of marriage. But when it comes to the primacy of marriage, this is the clip that I want to play for you because um, he, he talks about you're really doomed at the outset if you're engaged or preparing for a wedding, that the wedding planning typically is where it begins, that the primacy of the marriage is already kind of threatened and you think about it I mean he talks about what ought to be a relatively simple and inexpensive process becomes the signature event of one's life to prove usually the parents personal success good breeding and familial power that's right so I want you to listen it's about a five six minute clip listen to how he says it you'll get a feel for kind of what he is but he was offered to be the uh, officiant at each of his own children's weddings. And I just imagine what he's talking about requiring. And he, he takes a knock at Episcopalians or Anglicans because we have a, a short service, but it's, it's pretty good. So listen to this. Uh, my children, uh, all three of my children are married. 
All three of my children have given me one of the sweetest gifts I have ever been given, and that is the privilege of officiating their weddings. Uh, and when my first daughter got married, uh, she and her husband-to-be came and asked uh, and then said, we know that you have been part of a number of weddings, many. Uh, we'd love your we have thoughts about what we would like to do in a wedding, but we would also like your thoughts as well as to what would be a way of honoring uh, and celebrating. Uh, and so we began the conversation. I said, look, there's one thing that I would recommend, that at some point in the ceremony, you know, you'll be up front, I'll be here, you'll be here, at some point, I want you both to turn to your parents. And at that juncture, I said, as awkward as it may be, I'm going to leave the front and I'm going to sit with my wife. And what I want you to do, uh, and again, nothing, nothing against the Episcopalians. Uh, but I was paying for the wedding. So this wasn't going to be like a 12-minute ceremony. I was looking at us, suggesting to them somewhere in the range of 90 minutes to two hours. And I said, at some point, I want you to look at your parents. Obviously, you know, for you, Abby, that would be your mother and I. And I want you to thank us. And I said, how you do that uh, is up to you. But a mere mom and dad, thank you, I'm sorry, be my mom and dad. You know, thank you, mom and dad, you were great taught me a lot, really appreciate you, that's just not going to work. I said, I don't care how you organize it, you, you could start like summative one to five, and, and then go age, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. <laughs> if, if you don't want to do it more chronologically, um, you could do it more thematically, things you've learned, four or five major themes that you learned. But I want you to, literally, I want you to be grateful for what you have gained, each of you, from what you've gained from your mom and dad. But then, after you finish, and I would say take 10 or 15 minutes each, um, I want you to then look at your mom and dad. That would obviously include me and my wife and your mother and father. And say something that akin to these words. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But when I turn my back on you, I want you to understand there's something very symbolic about it. I'll be looking in the face of my new husband, my new wife. And in that motion, never again will I bear loyalty to you as I once did as your child. I'm saying, Mom and Dad, we'll not be joining you for at least the first three or four Christmases until we've established our own family rituals. Uh, we're not going to be vacationing with you ever. <laughs> ever, because being with you is a visit not a vacation. Even if you pay for it, we're glad to visit, but we will not take our vacation time to be with you. And mom 
may no longer have a hold over either of us because our loyalty is now a chesed. The Hebrew word loyal love, our chesed is toward each other, not toward you. Thank you, bless you, we honor you, and our loyalty is now to each other. My daughter and son-in-law are looking at me like you have lost your freaking mind. And I said, how does that sound? And my daughter said these words, we would be the only wedding in the history of weddings that offered a bizarre disruption that everyone in the whole audience would be thinking nothing other than how weird, what does it mean? Uh, they just offended their parents. Uh, no! That's my point. We can't tell the truth. But what I just said is the very core. You must die to a loyalty in order to let a new loyalty rise. And that does not mean that you do not continue to care for, that you do not continue to honor. Of course you care for, of course you honor. But please hear the next phrase. You are not bound to their blessing. You are not bound to their dreams. You are not bound to their expectations. Nor are you bound to their criticism. <clears throat> Go and meditate on that for a few days. <laughs> Um, if there's one thing I could tell young married uh, or folks who are folks who are preparing for marriage, it is to, to really meditate and think. Because when you start, notice the little little things that he talked about: the vacations, the visits, the the holidays. Like those are the things, the rubber meeting the road, where all of a sudden, for me, I start getting a little anxious and my heart starts beating faster and my palms get sweaty because it means somebody's going to be upset. But do you notice? I mean. There's so much wisdom. I mean, he's, he's dead serious about take 15, 20 minutes and really thank and honor, but then just as powerfully to say this allegiance is changing for good. That's what this chapter's about. And we don't have time to go into the rest of it, but if you don't have it, get it, um, this book. And basically the primacy, the privacy of marriage, the power is inside of this own relationship of marriage, not outside of it. And so leaving our past involves three things. It involves, can we name everything that has shaped us in our lives? Does your spouse actually know some of this? Can you name with honesty? And he says, this is a lifetime's worth of work, naming the things that have shaped us for good and for ill, both in and out of our families, and inviting our spouse to see that. Can you name it? Secondly, can you embrace the goodness of God even in the most horrifying parts of our stories. Seeing his goodness in our stories, it may not be the way we would have written it, but he is writing the story nevertheless for his glory and our ultimate joy. And then thirdly, can we dream together as a married couple of what redemption can look like? That is how you leave your past. Can you name it? Can you, can you discuss and embrace what is good in it and in each other? And can you dream and long for 
restoration and redemption together. And to do that, you have to have this ability to weave your lives together, which is next week on communication. So let's pray, and we will head out. Heavenly Father, what a scary and daunting task of leaving all of our past allegiances. But you call us to nothing short of that, because this is indeed is a glimpse of the gospel, that our ultimate allegiance is to you alone. And if marriage is a picture of that, then it is nothing short of that. Would you give us the courage, as I prayed for, to name with honesty the dynamics that are at play in our family of origins, in our marriage, in our friendships, any, any sort of threat to the garden of our marriage? Would you give us the courage to name it? Would you give us the courage to, to align ourselves in ultimate loyalty to our spouse? And would you cultivate this, this ground that we are seeking to provide honesty and safety and security and loyal love to one another? Would it flourish and produce good fruit in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.